heard a story about a preacher who happened to notice a mother give her child a dollar to put in a collection plate when it was passed around. And when the plate arrived, the boy obviously struggled with deciding whether or not he was going to put the dollar in it. And he finally settled upon not putting the dollar in the collection plate. And after the worship service was over, he came running up to the preacher and held out his hand with that dollar in hand. And he gave it to the preacher, causing the the preacher to ask, why didn't you put this in the collection plate? And the boy's response was, because I know how bad you need it. And the preacher said, what makes you think that I need it? He said, because my mom told me that you're the poorest preacher she ever heard. (laughs) For the record, that did not happen to me. (laughs) But that humorous story alludes to something that we call benevolence. Benevolence is an act of kindness or a charitable gift bestowed on another. And while, while benevolent acts do not necessitate financial or material gifts, that is what we're going to talk about today. And so maybe a better definition for our purposes today is this. The act of giving money or help to people. See, I want to spend today talking about the beauty of benevolence because benevolent activity is a remarkable demonstration of our love for God. In fact, I would contend that benevolent activity is a mark of true discipleship, and here's why. If you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, you'll come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and you'll encounter this brief description of life in the church at its beginning. You'll immediately read that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to uh, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. You're, you're being informed of all these things, to all of these activities to which the church was devoted. But in that same passage, if you drop down to verse 44 and 45, you'll also see that benevolence was emphasized when you read these words. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And this description of benevolence was not limited to just this account. Journey a couple of chapters further into Acts, you'll get to Acts chapter 4. And in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4, we are told that among the believers, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And a couple of verses later, beginning there in verse 34 and continuing through verse 35, we learn that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Throughout the book of Acts, the church is depicted as a people who denounced materialism and adopted a communal lifestyle in order to meet the needs of the poor. And that emphasis, that benevolent emphasis in the early church is what I want us to notice today. 
Benevolence was a trademark of the church, just as much as fellowship, just as much as prayer, just as much as observing the Lord's Supper or studying God's Word. Benevolence was a trademark of the church. And this morning, I want us to consider what the Bible says about benevolence because I want to make sure that we're imitating the first century church. And so let's start with this. When you journey through the Bible and consider what it says about benevolence, one of the first things you've got to observe is that benevolence is commanded. Jesus spoke about benevolence by commanding its existence. For instance, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then it, skipping over to Luke chapter 12, after Jesus uh, uh, talks about not being anxious for your life, not being anxious about what you will eat and what you will wear, he then says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. There is an overarching message in the teaching of Jesus that we're going to give, that we're going to help those who are less fortunate. And it's not just something that he commanded. It's also something that he just simply expected of those who follow him. See, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42... He gave the instruction to give to the one who begs from you. Just eight verses later, you arrive in Matthew chapter 6, the passage we read in our scripture reading, where Jesus addressed the proper attitude toward giving. And he said this, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. And when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Pay attention to his use of the word when. It indicates that Jesus expected his followers to give to the needy. He used the when language in this same chapter when he addressed prayer in verses 5 and 6. And he used the when language in this chapter when he addressed fasting in verses 16 and 17. And the message of what he's saying is that I have an expectation that you're going to do this. So it's not if you give to the needy, it's when you give to the needy. It's assumed. So when we read in the book of Acts that land and houses were being sold and the proceeds of those sales were being given to the church so that the funds could be distributed to anyone in need, we're reading how the first Christians obeyed Jesus' give-to-the-needy command. The question we need to consider is are we fulfilling that command as well? Now, at this point, I probably haven't told you anything you've never heard before on this subject. You know benevolence is commanded. But did you know that benevolence is primary? Did you know that benevolence in Scripture, when you look at the church of the first century, was one of, if not their primary use of collected funds? Don't believe me? Well, let's just look at the evidence. 
Think about this. Why did Barnabas sell a field he owned and bring the money and put it at the apostles' feet? It was so that, he could be, it was so that it could be distributed to anyone who had need. Why did the apostles select the first deacons or, or at least the first men to serve in that kind of capacity? Why did they select them? It was to serve tables by handling the daily distribution of food to widows. Why were Paul and Barnabas commissioned by the church in Antioch to go to the elders in Jerusalem? It was to deliver financial relief to the brothers living in Judea because they had been forewarned by a prophet that there would be a great famine. Why did Paul instruct the church in Corinth to put something aside and store it up on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2? It was because he was taking up a collection for the relief of the saints. And what did Paul tell the church in Rome was his reason for traveling to Jerusalem? It was to deliver the aforementioned contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem that had been collected by Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. And finally, why did the church in Philippi send Epaphroditus to Paul? It was for him to deliver financial assistance to cover Paul's needs while he was imprisoned in Rome. See, every one of those examples that we just ran through had something to do with benevolence. All throughout the New Testament, we read of the church's use of collective funds to fulfill benevolent requests. And while that wasn't the only use of church funds, it does appear to be one of, if not the primary uses of church funds. And as far as I can tell, the only activity of the church that receives the same or more financial support than benevolence in the Bible is the preaching of the gospel. And what's interesting is that benevolence seems to be the one to, or to be one financial practice that set the church apart from all other organizations in its early days. Tertullian was a theologian who lived from about A.D. 155 to A.D. 222. In a work called Apology, he described the practices of the early church. And here's what he had to say about the collection and the church's use of those funds. If you skip down close to where the bolded part appears... He outlines what the funds were used for. In particular, he points out that they are not spent on banquets, drinking parties, or dining clubs, but for feeding and burying the poor, for boys and girls destitute of property and parents, and further for old people confined to the house and victims of shipwreck, and any who are in the mines who are exiled to an island or who are in prison merely on account of God's church. Now, this is a uh, hundred years approximately after the life of the last living apostle. But it gives us a glimpse into the early church and how it understood the practices of the first century church to be handled. The monies that were collected, do you notice what they're all focused upon? Benevolent activities. 
In fact, the early church set such a pattern of benevolence that Emperor Julian, who reigned from A.D. 361 to 363, complained that the impious Galileans, that was his, his term for Christians, the impious Galileans not, support not only their poor, but ours as well. What a reputation. The emperor is acknowledging that Christians are taking care of the poor of their own and the poor of the community. He's the government official who should be relied upon for that, isn't he? At least that's how it would work in America. As Dr. Everett Ferguson, who is the leading scholar on early Christian literature, pointed out, not a great deal is said about the use of contributions for other than benevolent purposes in the early Christian writings of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Not a great deal is said about the use of contributions for other than benevolent purposes. And this begs the question for us as a congregation and as individual members of the Lord's body, is benevolence prioritized by us? As a congregation, do we emphasize benevolence? Does it receive the same financial attention as, say, fellowship or education? Because in the Bible, all of those things are presented as essential aspects of church life, but benevolence receives financial priority. Or as an individual, do I emphasize benevolence with my funds? Does it receive the same financial attention as my dining out budget or my vacation budget? In the Bible, individual comforts and pleasures take a back seat to helping others in need. This morning, we need to be challenged, confronted even, by the reality that benevolence has a significant place in the life of the church on a congregational and individual basis. And it's modeled right there in the first century. Are we imitating that model? Are we restoring that practice? Not only do we look at benevolence and see that it was primary, but we need to also acknowledge that it is inclusive. One thing that's worth noticing about the first century church is that it did not pick and choose who to help. It just helped whoever needed to be helped. Look again at Acts chapter 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now some think that the all in this passage is a reference to fellow Christians and exclusive of those outside the church. Passages such as Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 uh, aid in this interpretation. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the need of the saints. And then there's also Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, which says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Those verses seem to support the idea that the benevolence done by the church was focused upon fellow Christians who were impoverished. And while benevolent activity in Acts 2 may have been a reference solely to inter-congregational inter benevolence, the Bible does not limit our benevolence to those who are members of the Lord's body. Pay attention to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 a little more closely. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It does not instruct us to do good exclusively 
to those who are of the household of faith. In fact, the verse begins by instructing us to do good to everyone. So we must acknowledge that benevolence is inclusive. You know, one of the most interesting things I discovered in studying benevolence was how it was understood and applied by the church after the first century, which I've already alluded to with that quote from Tertullian. We have many works of early Christian leaders who succeeded the apostles and wrote a hundred years or less following the inspired works preserved in our New Testaments, and these works were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they're not authoritative like the New Testament, but they are beneficial in that they help us understand how the early church interpreted and applied Scripture. And so I want to share with you what these early church writings said about benevolence. For instance, we have one work called The Shepherd of Hermas. It was written in the early 2nd century, probably around A.D. 130. And that would be potentially 50 years, just 50 years after the writing of Revelation. And it includes these instructions. Do good and give liberally to all who are in need from the wages that God gives you. Do not hesitate about to whom you should give and to whom you should not give. Give to all, for God wishes gifts to be made to all out of his bounties. And then there's a work by Irenaeus. Irenaeus lived through most of the second century and wrote his most popular work against heresies around A.D. 180. He said the following, The Lord said to love not only our neighbors but also our enemies, and to be givers and sharers not only with the good but also to be liberal givers toward those who take away our possessions. And finally, there's Clement of Alexandria who lived from approximately A.D. 150 to A.D. 215 and wrote a treatise entitled, Who is the Rich Man Who is Saved? around A.D. 203. In that work, he instructed his readers with the following, Do not judge who is worthy and who unworthy, for it is possible for you to be mistaken in your opinion. In the uncertainty of ignorance, it is better to do good to the unworthy for the sake of the worthy than by guarding against those who are less good not to encounter the good. For by being sparing and trying to test those who are well-deserving or not, it is possible for you to neglect some who are loved by God. Now, I bring all of these up because they have an overarching message of don't be picky. Just give. Give to all who have need. Don't be selective. Don't put parameters. In fact, Dr. Ferguson, who I mentioned earlier, he made this observation. It is to be expected that the sources would say more about Christian acts of mercy to fellow Christians. The church would have felt its first obligation here. But there is nothing to indicate an arbitrary limitation, and indeed much which implies that non-Christians were aided. The very question concerning aid for the unworthy suggests such an extension. This was the essence of doing good to one's enemies. Here's the point. When Jesus instructed us to give to the needy, he did not put qualifications on who we could or could not give to. He left it open-ended intentionally. And the early church understood that. Maybe, maybe that was a lesson Jesus' disciples learned from the feeding of the 5,000, which you can read about in Mark chapter 6, between verse 30 and verse 44. Remember that in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' disciples approached him and encouraged him to send the crowd away 
to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus responded to their advice by saying in verse 37, you give them something to eat. He then instructed them in Mark's account to find out how much food they had available to use, which led to the discovery of a boy who basically had five pitas and a couple of sardines. While Jesus was the one who converted that meal for one into a buffet for 5,000, it all began with him assigning his disciples the responsibility of finding food to feed the crowd. And that was a crowd that, according to John's gospel, included people who only wanted to see a miracle, as well as people who quit following Jesus because his teaching was too difficult to accept. And that means that it was a crowd filled with people who were not disciples. Jesus fed believers and non-believers that day, all starting with assigning his disciples the responsibility to find the resources. So if we're going to be benevolent like the first century church, then our benevolence should prioritize those who are members of the body of Christ, but it should never neglect those who are not members of the body of Christ. There must be that balance there. Because when we look at the first century church, it took care of its own, and it took care of the community as well. And here's why. Why spend our time talking about benevolence today? It all comes down to this. Benevolence is attractive. Benevolence is attractive specifically to people who are lost. In fact, the Bible holds this up. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 45, we're told that the believers were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And if you look just a couple of verses later, verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, we learn that the church had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, don't get me wrong. The benevolence that's described here is not the only reason the Lord was adding to their number. But I'm betting that benevolence was the primary reason they had favor with all the people. And you know what's also interesting? If you look at Acts chapter 6, where the apostles assigned those men to oversee the distribution of food to widows, after they created that assignment, after they had these men start overseeing, handling this particular benevolent effort, and they turned their attention to teaching and prayer. Do you know what happened? Verse 7 tells us that the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. An intentional ministry was started to focus on a benevolent need. And all of a sudden, we're reading about how the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, there's no scientific method involved here. There are plenty of other variables involved that contributed to the growth of the church in both Acts 2 and Acts 4. But we can't overlook the reality that benevolence played a part, even if we don't know how big that part was. And what we need to understand is that for people who are hurting, for people who need help, for people who need hope, Benevolence is like a welcome mat. 
A benevolent act may be the most inviting thing that a person has ever experienced. Benevolence can build rapport like nothing else. And benevolence may just be the means through which a lost soul can discover that the church is their home away from home. It's all because benevolence is attractive. Maybe that's why in Jesus' ministry, much of his opportunities for communicating the gospel began with him addressing the needs of people first. Whether that be through his miraculous healing of them or his spiritual healing of them. His charitable acts in their lives, whether it be restoring a leper's health, opening a blind man's eyes, or feeding 5,000. All of those charitable acts opened the door for him to share the good news because benevolence is attractive. In closing, I want to point this out, that you and I are the original recipients of benevolence. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand what Paul is teaching in this passage? That we were helpless. All of us at one time or another were hopeless. Every one of us needed a charitable act, and God fulfilled it. So when we're being benevolent, what we're really doing is imitating the Father. And one last thing I want to share with you about benevolence before we go is that Jesus made it clear that imitation on the front of benevolence affects our salvation. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus indicated that the sheep will inherit the kingdom because they gave food to the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed strangers, clothed the naked, and visited the sick and the imprisoned. Meanwhile, he indicated that the goats will be dismissed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels because they did not give food to the hungry, did not give drink to the thirsty, did not welcome strangers, did not clothe the naked, did not visit the sick or the imprisoned. And so this morning, as we take the time to study the topic of benevolence, it really comes down to this. Are you a goat or are you a sheep? Are you fulfilling Christ's expectations about helping those in need? Or are you only helping yourself? This morning, we're calling on ourselves. And mind you, when I choose something to preach, most often I'm choosing something that I needed to hear. But we're calling on ourselves to be benevolent like Christ was benevolent. And this morning, if you find yourself having any need, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Living for Jesus.
a life that is true, striving to please Him in